I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Tom Yulesman. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, March 22, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. First, we'd like to thank all the new and renewing members who made donations during the pledge drive last week. We didn't quite achieve our goal, so if you didn't get a chance to renew last week, give us a call, 303-449-4885. Do your part to keep KGNU going strong. Coming up, we look back at the nuclear reactor accident in Fukushima, Japan, and look forward to the future of the nuclear industry. It's never a good thing when you lose four nuclear power plants. However, as a result, nuclear power plants in the United States are going to learn and become safer. Let's look at some of the recent news in science. Tom? What's new in the solar system? Well, as spring has sprung here in the northern hemisphere of the home planet, the rainy season has dutifully arrived on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. But on Titan, April showers most definitely do not bring May flowers, especially considering that rain there consists of liquid methane. NASA reports that images captured by the Cassini spacecraft show evidence of methane rain falling on Titan's equatorial deserts, the first time this has been observed. The findings are published in the journal Science. Combined with earlier results reported in geophysical research letters, the new information is helping scientists understand the weather systems that swirl through Titan's thick atmosphere, as well as the changes to the moon's surface brought about by the changing seasons. Clouds form on Titan as part of an Earth-like cycle in which methane is the main ingredient instead of water. On Titan, methane fills lakes on the surface, saturates clouds in the atmosphere, and falls as rain, particularly during the spring. Researchers at the Chinese Academy of Science have found a way to mimic nature and help us save energy. Yanlin Song and colleagues describe in an upcoming article in Energy and Environmental Science how we might copy a method used by poplar trees to make a cool roof. Poplar trees protect themselves from sunlight with microfibers on the underside of their leaves that reflect light. When the sun is beating down on the tree, the leaves turn upside down and the insides of the leaves don't cook. The Chinese team made hollow fibers from polymers that biomimic the tree leaves. When they tested them out, the fibers did indeed reduce the temperature of a fiber-coated panel when exposed to the sun. They are still a ways from a commercial product, however. The current fibers just don't stand up to the weather. But the researchers are looking for more durable materials. For KGNU, this is Brianna Draxler. And mark your calendars for next Monday when the Cal Colorado Cafe Sci 2 will feature Richard Stuckey from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He's going to be talking about the snow mammoth discoveries of Ice Age fossils near Snowmass. That will be Monday, the 28th of March, 2011, 6.30 p.m. at Brooklands near Lodo in Denver. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. We're going to devote the rest of today's show to looking back at the nuclear accident in Fukushima, Japan, and look forward to how the disaster might impact nuclear power in the United States. We have with us in the studio Jeff King and Len Acklin. Jeff King is a professor of nuclear engineering and the director of the Nuclear Science and Engineering Program at the Colorado School of Mines. Jeff, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. Lynn Acklin is an associate professor of journalism at the University of Colorado's School of Journalism and Mass Communication. He's also co-director with co-host Tom Yulesman of the Center for Environmental Journalism. 
Prior to joining the faculty at CU, Acklin was editor of the Bulletin of, of Atomic Scientists, where he and the staff won a national magazine award for their coverage of the catastrophic meltdown of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in 1986. Lynn, welcome again to KGNU. Thanks, Tom. On March 11th, at 2.46 p.m., a 9.0 magnitude earthquake struck off the coast of Japan. Shortly after, a tsunami wave 10 meters high struck the coast. This one-two punch delivered almost unbelievable suffering to the country, with the current death, to death uh, toll approaching 20,000. The huge Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor complex, with six reactors and 4,700 megawatts of capacity, suffered a crippling series of accidents. Jeff, can you give us a brief summary of the sequence of events, beginning with the earthquake and tsunami up until the situation that the plant operators are facing today? Certainly. Um, first thing to say is that we're still learning exactly what happened. So this is the, the best information that I have at, the, at this time. Um, so you had the, uh, the earthquake. Uh, you had, well, but prior to the earthquake, you had six nuclear power plants. Three of them were shut down. That was four, five, and six. One, two, and three were operating and producing power. You had the earthquake. Um, and the plants that were operating shut down as they were supposed to. Uh, backup diesel generators came online. You had cooling. Um, everything was pretty much as expected. Uh, approximately an hour later, you had a tsunami um, where you had, and they've now admitted that uh, more water than they expected washed over the plant um, and in some fashion, we're not entirely clear, d disabled the diesel generators. Um, this is what really initiated the events that we've been watching. At that point, you no longer had cooling um, for the reactors. Now, they were shut down, so this is not a, a similar situation to Chernobyl. Um, but the reactors, when they're shut down, have about, at that point, 5% of the uh, heat they were producing that still needs to be removed. And they were unable to do that. So as time moved on, we uh, had fuel damage. Um, it now looks like in three of the plants. Um, which ultimately led to hydrogen explosions in um, three of the plants, one, two, and three, um, in some, uh, and then uh, as they are recovering from that, um, the, the water levels in the spent fuel pools um, have dropped for some reason, and um, we end up having a fourth hydrogen explosion in the number four plant. And that pretty much takes us to, to where we are today. They're in the process of recovering um, the, the uh, plants from those, uh, accidents and trying to uh, get electric power restored, which will pretty much at that point bring things to um, a stable situation once they have power restored and pumps running again. Okay, so as I understand it, they're, they're saying it's a, a partial meltdown uh, of the core. So well, let's just examine the worst case scenario. It didn't happen, but just, just think worst case if there was a complete uh, meltdown. Some people fear this could lead to a nuclear explosion. As I understand, this isn't the case, but perhaps you could uh, give us a little technical explanation and, uh, and put a few minds at ease. Yeah, it's, it's a very different scenario than, than Chernobyl um, in the sense that in Chernobyl you had a reactor that ran away in power and went to several, probably thousand times its rated power, causing a steam explosion which uh, blew the roof off the building and uh, ejected some people think up to a third of the core into the atmosphere. In this case, what you're looking at is reactors that are shut down and are dealing with a fraction of their operating power. And by not being able to cool the fuel rods, eventually you lead to uh, damage to those rods, starting with the cladding failing. Um, when the cladding fails, the some of the radioactive isotopes, the cesium and the iodine, are released into the coolant or into the uh, reactor vessel. 
in this case, they had to be vented, um, and that's where we see the iodine releases. Now, theoretically, we won't know. It'll be months before we know the extent of the fuel damage. Japan, we've seen estimates from 5 to 70% of the fuel damaged um, in the reactors. It'll be months before we know exactly how bad, because it's going to take a while before we can get a camera in and, and take a look. Um, in a, in a worst-case scenario, you might have fuel melting down to the bottom of the reactor vessel. Uh, we learned in Three Mile Island that when you have that happen, in most cases, in, in Three Mile Island, we, we melted over a third of the core. Parts of it fell to the bottom of the reactor vessel and were contained therein. Um, there's some big differences between these plants and, and Chernobyl in terms of the protection that they have in that scenario. So some uh, uh, analysts I've heard on, on the radio indicate that, that the uh, core meltdown could breach the primary containment, but uh, you're saying that's not uh, likely to happen? It's, at this point, it's, it's, it's very unlikely to have happened. Um, had it happened, we would have known it. Um, we, would have seen, we would have seen much higher radioactive releases than we did, and we would have seen different isotopes. So I have a, a question, and I guess maybe we can bring uh, Len into the, um, into the conversation here. Uh, Throughout this, uh, uh, throughout the incident, we've heard kind of reassuring um, uh, comments from uh, from people in the nuclear industry, from uh, nuclear experts, et cetera. But at each stage of the of the crisis, things seem to kind of get more out of hand, and reassurance turned to sort of dismay. So now it seems that you know, and I hear the events now that maybe things are turning the corner, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, what comments about this? Do we really know what's happening, and do we really have a clear idea of the risks of the people who live, uh, you know, in fairly close proximity to um, to the reactor, to the reactors, plural? I, I would say there's probably still some unknowns, although the, the statement of turning the corner is one that I, I hopefully uh, think we're getting to. Um, things are still evolving a little bit, but w one of the important things is that the amount of heat the decay heat is, is decreasing over time and very rapidly over time. So we're at a, a far more stable situation in terms of the decay heat than we were, you know, nine days ago. And that makes it easier to cool. And most of the reports that are coming in um, from Japan are fairly encouraging in terms of they, they see that, uh, you know, adding water to the spent fuel pools is working. We're not seeing one of the big indicators I'm looking for is anything other than cesium and iodine in, in, the, in the radiological samples. That would be an indication that parts of the, the, the core had managed to make into the, into the world. And that hasn't, we're not seeing that. Um, we're seeing cesium, we're seeing iodine. I haven't seen any radiological samples. And I'm actually seeing some reporting that they're now saying, yeah, we haven't found any alpha contamination. Uh, and alpha contamination is? Uh, would be, uh, we're seeing beta and gamma radiation, which is, uh, there's several different forms of radiation. They're all indicative of different nuclides um, and different conditions. And alpha contamination would be an indication that either uh, uranium or plutonium had left the core. Um, and we're not seeing any of that, which I find very encouraging. Len, you want to I, jump in? I think the, um, the unknowns actually dominate the story at the moment. Um, yesterday, uh, there were, um, you know, on, in two of the reactors, there was smoke coming from the reactors. Um, still uncertain what's what's going on there. Uh, in terms of the uh, cesium-137 and the iodine-131, the radioactive elements um, that has been found in uh, in food, in spinach, um, and uh, in uh, in milk. So you know the Japanese government has now you know ceased um, you know shipments from that part of the country. Um, the, 
you know, the, the long-term effects, uh, you know, I certainly agree. You know, we, we don't know what's, what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, as one uh, nuclear engineer said yesterday, uh, this is far from, from over. So that's a good kind of transition to, to talk about what this might mean for nuclear power generally. Um, I, you know, as, as someone who has done a lot of reporting on climate change, sort of, you know, have seen nuclear power as, you know, kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. It's a, it's a dangerous technology. But at the same time, I've also seen that, you know, operations have been fairly safe, uh, at least I, I thought so, um, since, uh, since um, the Three Mile Island and not, not counting Chernobyl because of the, the different design. But then this huge incident happened, six reactors, and uh, pretty scary. Things sort of seem to be spiraling out of control. M maybe now we've gotten it under control. So, you know, what does this mean for the future of the nuclear industry? What should it mean for the future of the nuclear industry? Well, I, it, certainly we are going to, um, and the United States has already been. In fact, it, it, there was a fair amount of news yesterday that the NRC has ordered the uh, U.S. nuclear industry to review the lessons learned, start reviewing, looking for what we can learn um, from uh, the events of Fukushima. And it actually turns out that the nuclear industry had started that before the NRC even, uh, even begun. That's a, a very key part of operations in the United States and generally worldwide as well. Um, that we learn from, we have lessons learned, and we learn from uh, the events. So we we now know that the um, that the earthquake and the tsunami were larger than had been estimated could occur in that region. Um, the the plant was uh, was designed for a less severe accident than they had. One of the things we'll go back and do, and we've already done in the United States, um, partly as a result of 9/11, is looking at uh, ensuring that we can even survive the what are known as design basis accidents, things that are way beyond um, what we expected. Um, the United States has looked at you know situations where you lose all offsite power, and we've required you know uh, backup diesel generators in vaults that aren't going to be destroyed by you know any accident, which is a little bit of a difference. Um, and so the, the industry will learn, um, the industry will modify its operations as appropriate, and we will um, see as a result a, uh, a more robust um, industry. It, you know, I have, a, <clears throat> I have a very different take than the, uh, than the optimistic outlook of my uh, nuclear engineer friend here, um, or colleague, I should say. Um, the, uh, you know, what we, what we know and what we should be um, looking at now, you know, we, we don't know the, the full details and won't know that for some time of, of exactly what happened with this plant. But we, what we should stand back and look at is the question of risk. And, you know, here you have a, a situation of a, of a very sophisticated and dangerous technology used to boil water, you know, to turn turbines to make electricity. And, you know, what we're discovering, um, as, uh, as Jeff King just said, you know, the, uh, the earthquake and the tsunami were, were beyond what was expected. Well, guess what? That's the way the world works. Um, there's a very interesting uh, article in today's Science Times and the New York Times about earthquakes and how little we know about the fracturing and how many of the largest earthquakes have occurred on faults that weren't even known before the earthquake occurred. Um, so, you know, here, you know, we have a situation where, you know, decisions, um, you know, 
people are making decisions, making arguments that this technology is safe. I've heard the inherently safe reactor argument since I was at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in the early 80s. Um, there's always the, the next design is going to take care of everything. Well, we don't know both on the design side as well as on the human side. You know, in Chernobyl, you had a, a situation of a combination of human error and you know, bad design, no question uh, about that. Uh, we're starting, as the story uh, now unfolds in Japan, we're discovering that there is more human error also involved in this plant, uh, which involved uh, conflicts of interest between the nuclear regulators who were supposed to be overseeing this. Um, you know, there were, uh, you know, all kinds of, um, of questions raised about the safety of these reactors. And, you know, to, to come back to the, to the United States, you know, we have 23 reactors of the same design um, as the Fukushima reactors. Uh, one of those reactors in Vermont was just given a 20-year extension by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you know, just before the accident. Um, you know, are we really so sure about, you know, the, the safety of, uh, of nuclear reactors? Just like to say you're uh, tuned to KGNU's How on Earth. We're uh, talking today about the Fukushima nuclear accident with um, Jeff King of the Colorado School of Mines and Lynn Acklin of the University of Colorado. Uh, getting back to that risk question, I'd, I'd just sort of like to put that in the context of the so-called black swan theory. The black swan theory says we're collectively blind to extreme events that, that often play big roles in history. So things like the Fukushima accident, I mean, it was a 9.0 uh, earth, earthquake followed by a, a tsunami wave that would double the, the design. Um, if we spec, uh, if we put that in the context of the, uh, the BP Deepwater Horizon, there were six independent uh, blowout preventers that failed in a, in a correlated way. So, 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 Jeff, how would you respond to an opponent of nuclear power that just says the industry, they, they can't compute the probabilities of these so-called black swan events, and they're exposing the public to, uh, to more risk than they believe. So not just this one, you know, because we know what happened in hindsight, but, you know, is there something, um, you know, coming up in the future? It's, it's sort of an abstract question, but I'd like your, uh, your take on that. Well, and I, I think part of the way I would go in answering that is to point out, too, that, that risk is a, is a mixture of probability and consequence. And one of the things